All right. We are in part three of our series, His Cross. And uh, just to recap where we've been, of course, this, the whole, this whole series is talking about the way of the cross. Uh, what does it mean to walk with the Lord in the way of the cross? And in our first couple of weeks, we've looked at that Jesus was offered good goals, but a shortcut to them, an easy way to get them. And things as small as just getting uh, bread because he was hungry, to big things like inheriting the kingdom. And uh, the devil was willing to offer Jesus the things Jesus wanted and ought to have, but, was, but get them without the cross. And that Jesus rejected that because he knew he couldn't avoid the cross. And we saw last week with, with Peter kind of leading the way of this temptation, again, to pursue good goals, but that those good goals still represent man's interests, not God's interests. And that, that there's this desire to avoid rough things and pursue good things. And we saw that Peter, Peter's pro-Jesus, Peter's pro-kingdom. We just seen that Peter had just said, you are, the, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And then when Jesus says, well, I'm going to go die, Peter's like, no, because you're going to win. And that Peter was very pro-God, and yet he's still pursuing man's interests. And that's a cautionary tale to us. We'll see that a little more today of that, that we need to be careful about the fact that we are pre-programmed with man's interests. So today, oh, so good goals, but man's interests. So today, turn with me to Matthew 26, and we're going to read Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. It's a familiar passage. It, it occurs in three of the four Gospels of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to look at this, Matthew 26, 36 through 46, and feel free to follow along while I read um, this passage. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them. Okay, hang on. No, I'll come back to it. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed again, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being delivered, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And as we know, Judas shows up and betrays him. So we need to give a little background here. Again, most of us, or many of us, are probably deeply familiar with this story. But we need to give a little background. And the background is Passover. And so we know that immediately preceding this was what we call the Last Supper, which was the Passover Supper, 
which is for them would be like our Thanksgiving and Christmas basically rolled into one. So remember, these disciples, these Jewish men, have probably been doing this Passover all their lives. This is a big deal. And what you may not realize is that part of the tradition of Passover is after Passover, you tended to stay up later, like kind of like New Year's Eve. And they would get, stay up later and have like a watch, and they would reflect on God's redemption. And so this has been part of these men's lives, where you kind of stay up a little later on Passover night, and after the meal, you kind of have a watch where you focus on and dwell on and sit around and discuss God's redemption. And so that's the background of this story, because, and that's why, because a lot of times I grew up with a high view of Scripture, that this is the inspired Word of God, that it's inerrant and, and reveals God's will. But even with that high view of Scripture, my view of Scripture wasn't high enough. That this has been a carefully crafted, well put together book by God to communicate things. And it's not just, some, it's not just a bunch of true newspaper articles. It's a carefully chosen story. Matthew puts this account together later. He's going back and saying, let me tell you about what happened. And he includes things that are important for us to hear. Including here, the fact that they couldn't stay awake. And we just go, oh, they were, they were tired. But for the Jews, for Jewish Hebrews who would be reading this account, they'd be, on Passover night? You're supposed to stay up and talk about God's redemption. And here, of all the Passover nights to stay awake for, this is the one. Because Jesus isn't just up dwelling on God's redemption. He's getting ready to be God's redemption. And they can't stay awake. They can't, and they says, can't you, even just for an hour, guys. And this is not a foreign thing. This, they should be, you stay awake for this. And of all the nights, of all the Passovers ever, to stay awake for. And Matthew says, and they didn't stay awake. And all the accounts point out that they, and that's why there's a special mention of sleeping. This is a poor showing on any Passover. And in retrospect, this night, it shows how, they're, how they don't understand Jesus. I mean, think about it. They've just had Passover. And Passover was their regular thing too. But Jesus had done a special Passover because what he had done during that Passover, next week we'll celebrate communion. But during that, this last Passover with them, he does special things like this, this bread, this actually represents my body that's going to be broken. Here's the cup. This is my blood about to be shed. And it still went... Whoosh. They still don't understand even though this represents God's redemption. And Jesus says, I'm about to do it. And we know they don't get it. And so we see their total lack of understanding God's interests in this evening. And they're sleeping through while God, Jesus is focusing on God's redemption. He says in verse 38, his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. It's a very strong statement. It's not, he's, a, he's mildly upset. He's a little sad. This is, a, this is deep to the point of death. A deep, deep despair. In verse 40, he comes and finds him sleeping. And it's kind of interesting because notice Peter is really kind of the spokesman. We see Peter all the way through these accounts. We saw Peter last week. First he makes the proclamation. Then he makes the, no, we, you won't die, Jesus. And Peter's kind of always out there in front. And so in verse 40, he, comes, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter. But notice when he says to Peter, so you men... 
Now, in the original language, it doesn't have the word men. So why'd they add the word men in there? Because in the English language, the word you doesn't tell us plural or singular. Because I can say you, or I can say you. And you can't tell. And here, it, the you is plural. So they stuck in men, so you'd know he's talking to everyone. So it's not just you, Peter. He speaks to Peter, but he goes, you guys! But Peter's still the focus. Why? Well, because Peter's been the guy all along. What did Peter just say before this? I will stand with you no matter what. I will die for you. And Jesus is like, actually, no. You're going you're gonna to run away and you're going to deny me. But Peter's like, no matter what it takes, I'll do. And Jesus is like, Peter, you can't even stay awake. You're going to die for me? You can't even stay awake for an hour. So he aims it a little extra at Peter because Peter's been the one making the big boasts about being on God's team here. And Peter can't even stay awake for an hour. And then he makes this, so, then he makes this statement in verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is, this is there's not some, nothing mystical to this statement. It's a very just straightforward, clear statement. I want to do the right thing, but part of me doesn't. There's this resistance. This is an expression of Jesus' humanity. We'll talk more about that in a minute. That he goes, I'm willing, the Spirit is willing. Paul would later restate this very concept with the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. This idea that there's a, there's a conflict within me between what I want to do and then what I don't want to do and do. And that's what he's saying here. The Spirit is willing, In, inwardly I'm set, but no, the flesh is weak. In verse 39 and again in verse 42, he talks about this. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. This idea of, I have this, these two wills, these two interests. You see it in 39. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In 42, unless, if this, can pa- if this can't pass away, then fine, I'll do it. So you see that there's two wills at work in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has a human nature. He's fully human. He's 100%. He's not 50% human. He's 100% human. He's also not 50% God. He's 100% God. And so as God, he, he wants what God wants. He has a, the, the desires for godliness. And as a human, he has this body that's going, I don't want to get hurt. The body that gets hungry, the body that gets tired, and the body that experiences pain. And so we, he has two wills going on here. And there's what he wants, and there's what God wants. Not my will, but yours be done. In verse 41, he uses the word temptation. We saw, keep watching and praying that you may not enter, enter into temptation. We hear temptation, and we think, hey, kid, want some candy? But the word here, to their meaning, would be better translated for us the word testing. The testing of your faith. To put it under strain. Now temptation can test your faith. But the idea here is testing. And what this is really referring to is the upcoming tough time. Again, Peter's about to have his faith tested. Peter's been shooting his mouth off about his faith left and right, right? I will follow you. I will die for you. I will go where you go. And he's like, 
Peter, you should be praying right now because that's going to be put to the test. And he's told Peter, by the way, Peter, you're not going to make it. When we were in the Dominican, there was a, when, in the early years of when I was going to the Dominican, next door there was a rooster. They've now bought that property and the rooster's gone. We do not miss the rooster. If you've ever had a rooster, this idea that the rooster sits there and waits for a glimpse of the sun and then begins to crow, that's not how roosters work. At least not this rooster. I don't know if he was concerned about getting it right at daybreak so he spent up the night practicing. But he didn't just crow in the morning. He'd crow, oh, two o'clock. I probably should make sure I can still do this. Oh, four o'clock in the morning. We hear him all night. And that's what roosters do. And that's when Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, that's not some mystical, the third crowing. Basically, what he means is, you know how often roosters crow? Before a rooster has a chance to do it three times, you'll have already failed me. That's all he's saying. In other words, he said, Peter, this won't take long for you to totally go back on what you've just said. Before a third crow, you'll already have, you'll already have failed. This is how weak you are. So here he says, guys, you should be praying right now. You should be preparing for what's to come so that you will not enter into this testing. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guys, you're not getting ready. And we know they will fail. They will fail. They will all fail the test that comes. They will all run away. So this idea that temptation will help them prepare. And then the last note, Mark 14, 36. In the other account, one of the other accounts of this. Mark 14, 36. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father. It drives me a little crazy with biblical translation now and then. Because now and then, the translators will hit a word and they're uncomfortable with the word. And so rather than translate it, they don't. And the only reason they don't is because they feel a little awkward translating it. And this is one of those situations where they don't translate Abba. And so then we bring, so we bring this untranslated word into our language, but because it's not in our language, it doesn't resonate for us. And so then we say, okay, well, when I pray, I might pray Abba, Father. But Abba doesn't mean anything to us. But to them, the word Abba is the word Papa. If we were going to translate it, we would translate it Daddy. It's an incredibly personal, intimate, informal address. It's not Father. It's not even, hey, Dad. I was talking to one of the young men this morning at first service. And he's got a little girl, and he goes, yeah, we had a transition this week. I stopped being dada and suddenly became dad. And I said, oh, I feel you. That moment when, you, when, when that happens, you just never know when it's going to happen, and suddenly you're not daddy, you're just dad. And he goes, oh, this is daddy. It's an incredible thing. And the other thing you need to realize, it's very un-Jewish. They didn't, you didn't talk to God like that. I mean, the name of God, Yahweh, they, didn't even, they, they held God in his name in such reverence that they didn't even, you weren't supposed to speak that name. They wouldn't write it down because if they wrote it down, you might accidentally read it. And so they would take the letters from the word Yahweh and they would take the main letters. 
Then they would take the name Adonai, which is the word for Lord, which as our word Lord, Adonai can mean God or it could mean someone else like my Lord. And they took the letters from Adonai and stuck them in the letters for Yahweh, creating the word that we translate Jehovah, so that if you accidentally read it, you still wouldn't say the name of God. Because you just don't just say the name of God because they held the Most High God in such reverence. That's how you have to be so careful with his name and how you speak of him, holding it in such high reverence. And here's this Jewish man who doesn't just, not only doesn't he treat him that way, but he calls him Daddy, Papa. And that's, that is not part of Jewish tradition. You don't do that. I mean, they might say, well, God, our father, like Father Abraham, but it was this, you know, again, this reverence. And Jesus calls him Papa. Not a way a Jew should ever address Yahweh. All right, so I think we've dug through this passage, but now let's apply it and see what it means to us. So the first big thing is we need to establish and be clear that at no time during this night or the next day does Jesus sin. Now, I realize that me saying that, you might go, well, duh. But I just want to be really clear on this, that at no time does Jesus sin. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. So all the way through here, at no time are we going, oh, Jesus, boy, you shouldn't have done that. Uh -uh -uh. Jesus doesn't sin. So at no point in here are we experiencing watching Jesus sin. All right? I know I'm belaboring a simple point, but it's important. Because having said that, look what happens. One, he experiences deep grief, stress, even what we might call despair. My soul is troubled, deeply grieved, deeply grieved. The word grieved there is strong enough, and then you throw in deeply and then that's not strong enough, so add to the point of death. I mean, I've been deeply grieved. I don't know if I've ever been, at least in my adult life, deeply grieved to the point of death. That's a level of grief. I know people who have experienced it. I'm not sure I ever have. And I've been pretty deeply grieved. I've been depressed. He experiences that. And he's not sinning. And yet, I think many of us realize that there are times that we have portrayed that people who feel that way, well, if you really trusted Jesus, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. Don't you have the joy of the Lord? Don't you trust Jesus? Don't you, don't you love God? If you love God, you shouldn't feel this way. Jesus felt this way, and you can't accuse him of not loving, knowing, trusting God. He's not sinning. That's the first point. He's having a bad night. And he's not, that's not a sin. The next thing. He expresses a desire to do something different than God's will. I mean, he says it straight out. This isn't like, oh, we can kind of interpret that. He's, not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. If this will matched this will, then there wouldn't be a conflict. Because, well, I just want what you want, God. So he couldn't say, well, not my will, because that would be the same thing. He says, no, I have this, I have this will, not this, this. He expresses a will that is not 
the same as God's will. And how often do we struggle with that one? They say, well, I know what God wants, but I don't want that. And then the very fact that you find yourself wanting things that is not what God wants, you're like, something must be wrong with me. Something must be wrong with my walk with God. Because if I was really in touch with God, then wouldn't I just want whatever He wants? Well, apparently not. Because again, Jesus is not in sin, and yet He is in conflict. He tells us it straight out. Not my will. He possessed a will that needed to be put away. And if that's not enough, he asks repeatedly. He doesn't just do it once. He goes back and then he goes back again. He repeatedly says, can we not do what you want? Can we do what I want? He doesn't end there. He ends with, we'll do what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. He always ends with God's will. But he repeatedly expresses a will that's in contrast. How does he do this? What we call, talking to God, we call it prayer. But this is not a formal, structured prayer. Jesus doesn't go, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not my will. But Okay? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do the things that we've seen, a formal prayer. Instead, you see him fall to the ground. He's so stressed out, he's popping blood vessels on his forehead. He's, he's unable to stand. And he falls down and he goes, Daddy! Can we not do this? So it's not a prayer like we would think of prayer. Hello, Father. So what's going on here? Well, I, this is an observation I made. I feel like his prayer is not rooted in uncertainty, but in certainty. He knows what God wants. We so often think of prayer as, when I don't know something, I ask God and want him to tell me. So we see prayer as kind of an information thing where I tell God something he needs to know from me and I ask God what I need to know from him. And so prayer becomes this conversation I'm having with God where we exchange information so that I might become more enlightened. And that's not what we're seeing here at all. Because at no point is Jesus trying to figure out what God wants. Jesus has known this has been God's plan since before they created light. So he is not uncertain. The prayer is all about what he already knows. It's him grappling with what he knows, not with him trying to figure something out. This prayer is about dealing with hard things. Verse 41. Entering into testing, temptation. This is the battle we've seen Jesus fighting for a while. I have, as a human, I have man's interests. But I have committed myself to God's interests. Jesus, I know you're hungry. How about using your power to make bread? No, my life is not about bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jump off the temple and become instantly famous. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
I'm not here to test God. He's been dealing with this struggle for a while. Or to put it another way, Jesus is not struggling with disobedience, but obedience. And we are witnessing his process. He told us, I want to obey. The Spirit is willing. This is what I'm here for. But the flesh is weak. Part of me doesn't want to do this. Well, how do you overcome that? He says, well, you watch and pray. You fight through it. He's not struggling with disobedience. He's struggling with obedience. It's, this is going to hurt. And you're watching it hurt. You're watching him working through the agony of obeying. Because it goes against what he wants, his will as a human being. And we are seeing what that looks like. This is his process. That's what this whole night is about. It's about how do I obey? How do I get where I need to go? And that's why the writers, the apostles later, giving us this report, show us and allow themselves to be the contrast because they are supposed to be doing the same thing, right? And he wakes them up. Guys, you should be praying right now so that you will not fall. That you will not fall into the temptation of the testing. The temptation to what? Not do the hard thing. The temptation to give in to man's interests. And what did they all do? They all gave in. And Peter, who had been the biggest advocate, became the biggest failure. As Jesus warned him he would be. Peter, you, you should be praying right now. You need to fight through this because this is going to be hard, Peter. You should be praying and preparing for the moment. And Peter didn't. And he wasn't. And when the moment came, he was unprepared because he had never struggled with his obedience. And so he didn't obey. We often need to work through obedience. It's hard. Resistance and distress is normal. And see, that's the thing I think that sometimes we miss. And I think as, sometimes as, as Christians, we, we have thought that man, shouldn't just following God just come naturally? If I'm really sanctified, if I really love Jesus, shouldn't I just want to? Well, not if you read this. Because you have a human nature too. And it doesn't want to. And the Bible repeatedly tells you that. The flesh sets itself against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You're constantly in the same war Jesus is, which is the whole point. He came to show you how to fight and to win for you. <laughs> and that's why this was written down. These things were written so you'd know. This was given to you not just so you'd have an understanding of what happened, but so that you could learn from Jesus. Working through obedience is hard, and you're going to feel resistance. And when you feel resistance, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And if you feel distress, that's normal. Because Jesus felt distress. 
He told us. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Our spiritual journey involves and even requires physical suffering. And again, we, we don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want physical suffering. And yet, if you look through both the Old and New Testament, what do you see so often when Jesus raises up a leader? He says, now this is going to hurt. He takes Moses says, all right, Moses, we're going to go out in the wilderness for 40 years. And the wilderness was where life is hard. Jesus, for his time, was sent out for 40 days. And it says he was with the wild beasts and he didn't eat anything. This is going to hurt. When Saul of Tarsus meets Jesus and now he's sitting blind and God sends Ananias, he says, go meet with him. And he needs to understand how much this is going to hurt, how much he's going to suffer. Why? Because God just likes to hurt people? No, but because our spiritual journey involves and even requires physical suffering because our flesh is set against everything else. And our natural instinct is to avoid suffering. Our natural instinct is to be happy, to be content, to feel safe, to feel good. And every single one of us wants it. And then what happens? The more your flesh hurts, the more your flesh goes without, it fights harder. So when I am overtired, when I am hungry, when I am lonely, my capacity to go against God becomes greater. Right? Your worst moments are when your flesh is going, I need it bad. Because I'm hurt, hungry, lonely, tired. And your flesh fights the spirit. And the only way and that's why Paul said, I buffet my body. I have to, the flesh has to suffer. It has to be put to death. And it doesn't mean that we physically die, though Jesus did say, if you've got a particularly problematic piece of flesh, maybe cutting it off might be helpful. But our natural instinct is to avoid. And we need to understand that when you're struggling with obedience, that's normal, natural, and necessary. Now, I want to make one other note here. There is no response from God recorded. As far as the narration goes, you never hear God the Father answer. That is not included. Why, why not? Well, we know it's not because God's not there. We know it's not because Jesus got a busy signal. That God didn't have his phone on him. Or as happened to me yesterday, forgot to take your phone off silent and missed a whole day's worth of calls. Well, why? Why does not God speak? Because no words were required. Because again, we tend to think of prayer as we talk to each other and we exchange information. But Jesus doesn't require any information. His prayer is not about asking God what he wants. He already knows what God wants. 
his prayers about working through the tension between what he knows God wants and what his own heart desires. The desire of his flesh for self-preservation, to avoid pain, to avoid suffering, to avoid being alone. And so his prayer is not about God tell me, his prayer is God listen. And it's an incredibly intimate moment because Jesus is connecting with God and God is there. And he calls him Daddy. He says, Papa, this is hard. And he just pours out his heart to his father who is listening. The biggest thing I tell people when I I want people to help comfort other people to say, well, I wouldn't know what to say. I'm like, that's perfect, shut up. Because our temptation is to speak into pain. And rarely does speaking into pain work. The best thing you can ever do with pain is to shut up and listen. And the father is not absent, but he is silent. As his child just expresses, Papa, this is hard. Yep, it is. We need to use this as a template for our hard thing. And when you find yourself like this, that's appropriate. So often we think that the way is going to be easy, and we were told it wouldn't be. And we think that when we find that there's this thing in us that's constantly fighting, well, yeah, it's been explained. And you are going to struggle with obedience. And we can't avoid it. And we can't avoid that struggle. We shouldn't. That's what the cross represents. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we see you and we see, we are seeing you, one of us. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You became human. You didn't cease to be God, but you did become fully and completely human and your word tells us that you were tempted and tested in all things the same as us yet without sin but lord you felt everything we feel and we watch you feel it we watch you struggle we watch you with the same struggle that we have where we want to follow you but we also don't want to go through with the hard things and lord so often we struggle with very minor things compared to you and compared to other Christians elsewhere. Often minor inconveniences are enough to make us run away from you. Going without things that we don't even need but really want, that we feel like we need, are enough to cause us to abandon you and to give in to what feels good rather than what is good. Lord, we chase after even your kingdom in ways that won't hurt. We want to experience walking with you in ways that are just full of victory but never have pain. Lord, may we struggle more. Lord, that like you had to learn obedience through suffering for us to remember we have to. And that it's okay to be upset. 
Lord, to question you and to ask you is not a lack of faith, but what it means to work through and struggle through to get to obedience. And Lord, may we pursue obedience through suffering. Lord, if there are people here today listening on the stream or here in person who have felt that they were failing you because it was hard, who have felt that they must be doing it wrong because something in them has screamed no, Lord, I pray that they would just come to you and just cry out, Daddy. To know that rough nights are part of the Part of, the tr- part of the trail. And that they will be reassured that their struggle towards obedience is okay. Thank you, Father, for coming and showing us how to work through the tension between our earthly lives and your heavenly calling. And Father, may we follow in your footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen.